one. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, I do want to pray for the dads in our church. Lord, no matter how young or old a father is, they have opportunities to bless and to love and to share wisdom with their kids. Lord, it is a sacred role which you have created. Lord, it is a day that can mean different things to different people. Some of us no longer have our fathers with us. Some of us might have had difficult relationships with our fathers. Lord, we thank you for the men in our lives who have influenced us and helped shape us into the people that we've become. And with all of the greatnesses and imperfections of our, heaven, of our earthly fathers, Lord, let that point us to you, our true and perfect heavenly father. You rule and reign with sovereign authority. You know our needs better than we do. You know the number of hairs on our heads. A sparrow does not fall without your knowledge. That is your exhaustive knowledge of our world. Lord, you know the situations of our past and present and future. Lord, you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Lord, in stressful times, instead of trying to control situations, manipulate situations, worry about situations, grumble about situations, may we instead turn to you and trust in you. In times of uncertainty, may we be certain of your goodness. In times of suffering, may we rejoice knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Lord, may we trust that there is nothing in our lives, no matter how big or small, which falls outside of your sovereign will. May we remember that you are eternal and eternally faithful to your promises and word, and that you never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, in the frightening times of life, may we draw near to you, not run from you. Lord, please bless our time as we study in your word. May we again be reminded of your gospel and rejoice in your Son who has come into the world so that we can be forgiven our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing, as I mentioned, in the Gospel of John this morning. And actually, before I do that, I would just like to once again say to all of our dads here today, Happy Father's Day to you. Um, but continuing in John chapter 6, last week we looked at Jesus feeding the multitudes. This week, we look at the story of the disciples being caught in a storm and Jesus coming to save them, walking on water. And really, that's another one of Jesus' greatest hits and most beloved stories in the Gospels. The event is recorded in three Gospels, Matthew and Mark and here in John. 
And all three of the Gospels where it's found, it appears directly after Jesus feeds the multitudes. John's version of the story is the shortest by a significant margin. For instance, Matthew's account is more than twice as long as John's, but that makes it no less important. Also, I should mention that a good exercise to do when reading your Bible, when you come to a passage that's in more than one of the Gospels, is to look at it across the Gospels. Notice what's different, what's the same. Notice different things that might be emphasized or less emphasized in another Gospel. I think that that's a a worthwhile exercise to do. Before we jump into our passage, I just wanted to make one more comment. Last week, we talked about how in John chapters 6 through 8, in that section of John, it echoes a number of themes that are found in the Exodus. And we'll again see that in our passage this week. Last week, we saw it in the time of year. It's Passover, the same time of year when the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. When Jesus feeds the multitudes, it alludes to the Lord providing manna from heaven during the Exodus journey. In this week's passage, with Jesus walking on water, it echoes crossing the Red Sea. In the preceding passage, the current passage, in and next week's passage, John continually orients the geography of these events around the sea. And that will be especially relevant today. And so with that, we'll jump in this week. And we'll look at our passage in three scenes. The setting, a conflict, and a resolution. After feeding the multitudes in last week's passage, it concluded by telling us in John 6.15 that Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Just as Moses had gone alone to Mount Sinai, Jesus departs from the multitude of people by himself on the mountain. And with that, we transition into our next scene. Verses 16 and 17 says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So there's a shift in the time of day. It's now evening. And so the disciples go down to the sea. Last week's passage, if you remember, told us that they were at the Sea of Galilee. Now, when I think of something that's called the sea, I think of that as being basically a small ocean. But the Sea of Galilee is actually a large lake. I looked this up this week. If the Sea of Galilee were in America, it would be the 80th biggest lake in America. So it's a good-sized lake, but not an impossibly big lake. The important thing about the Sea of Galilee isn't its size, rather it's, its geography. It's more than 650 feet below sea level. But around the Sea of Galilee, you have hills and mountains, and so the lake can be susceptible to extremely severe weather as you have cooler air coming over top of the hills and mountains and mixing with the relatively warm air of the water or over the water. Verse 17 tells us that the disciples get into a boat and start heading to Capernaum. It's probably about five miles away from where they are. 
And John mentions that it's dark, solidifying the mood of the story. He's already said at the beginning that it's evening, and now he mentions darkness. And light and darkness continues to be an important theme woven throughout John's gospel. Yes, it's dark literally, but it's also dark in the sense that they do not have the light of Christ with them. And really, it's one of the few places in John's gospel where there's a temporary absence of Jesus from the story, if even for a few verses. Second scene, we see the conflict, verses 18 and 19. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing when they had rowed about three or four miles. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. I think it can be really easy just to read that clause and just keep on reading. That's a very brief description of their precarious situation. They've gone about three and a half miles, roughly. Based on the other gospel accounts of the same story, we know that they've gone, it's about three o'clock in the morning. Keep in mind that some of the disciples were professional fishermen. They knew how to sail a boat. The trip should have taken an hour, maybe two. But they get caught up in this poor weather. It's night. It's dark. The waves of the Sea of Galilee can be fierce in this weather. They're undoubtedly getting exhausted as they struggle against this storm. It would be a frightening situation. But then Jesus enters the story, and that'll bring us to our third scene in the resolution, verses continued verse 19 into 20. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. The disciples see Jesus walking to them, and they're afraid. None of the gospel accounts mention that the disciples were fearful because of the weather. All three gospel accounts mention that the disciples are frightened, though, when they see Jesus walking towards them on the water. To give an example, Matthew 14, 26 says, When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They're fearful, in part because they don't realize it's Jesus. In ancient thought, the sea was often thought as being an unfriendly and hostile environment. I'm not saying that the disciples believed this way, but for some in the ancient Greco-Roman world, they thought if you drowned, that you could not go to heaven and that your soul was lost. For the disciples, they might have seen Jesus and thought that he was an unfriendly spirit, especially by the fact that they refer to him as a ghost. But instead, it's Jesus himself. In the disciples' time of need, Jesus shows up. He's Lord even in the storms. He's Lord even when a situation seems hopeless. He's Lord when we're afraid. Jesus sees the disciples struggling in the storm from several miles away. He walks out in this storm with waves crashing down on him and walks to the boat with his disciples. That's alluding to a few different events in the Old Testament. It's an allusion to creation. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, 
and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Jesus is the Lord who was in the beginning and who made all things. In both creation and in this miracle, we see the dominion of the Lord over the waters. And as I referenced in the beginning, we again see allusions to the Exodus in this event. In Exodus, God worked a miracle, several miracles, to free the Israelites. He had brought plagues upon the Egyptians. He had displayed his righteous judgment upon Egypt for their treatment of the Israelites and their refusal to release Israel. But as a final step before entering into the wilderness, the Israelites were confronted by the Red Sea with the Egyptian army following behind them. Did they trust the Lord? Did they look at how far God had already brought them? Exodus 14.10 says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people will go on to question why they've been brought into the desert to die and talk about how things really hadn't been so bad in Egypt. Their minds go to absurd places. But Moses responds in Exodus 14, 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. What happens next is one of the best-known events in the Bible. Through the mediation of Moses, God parts the waters of the Red Sea and enables the Israelites to pass through on dry ground and to escape their Egyptian persecutors. For the disciples, in their time of need, it is Jesus who comes to the rescue. Not by walking through the sea, but by walking on the sea. Again, remember the time of year. It's Passover, and here you have Jesus walking on water to come to the rescue of his disciples. And if you read John chapter 6 in one sitting, John keeps orienting this passage with its proximity to the sea. He keeps bringing it back into the story for emphasis. And the similarities to Passover and Exodus do not end there. To look again at Exodus 14, 13. Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Jesus similarly tells the disciples not to fear. Verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. In the Exodus... Moses was able to tell the Israelites not to fear because of the Lord who was bringing salvation. Jesus can definitively say not to fear because he is the Lord who brings salvation. Where he says, it is I, we lose the meaning in translation. Because literally what Jesus says in the Greek is, I am, do not be afraid. In the following section next week, 
Jesus will give the first of what are known as the I am statements, which are statements that Jesus makes, which further disclose his messianic identity. Certainly, it's possible to point to this verse in our passage today and to say that Jesus is simply saying, it's me, don't be afraid. In the Greek, it allows for that. It's possible. And perhaps the disciples did not catch the reference in the moment. But given all of the allusions back to Exodus, I believe that Jesus' I am statement is again referring back to the Old Testament. In Exodus, when God first appears to Moses and tells Moses that he has been chosen to lead the Israelites out of slavery, Moses asks God to reveal his divine name. And the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I made a mistake with my slides apparently. God refers to himself to Moses as I am. But what does that mean? That's a subject that's been debated since even before the time of Christ. In part, it speaks to God's self-existence. That God is being in himself. That God is so uniquely and purely God. And so you have Jesus on the sea near the time of Passover coming to rescue his disciples and telling them not to fear because I am is with them. In the storm, knowing of the life and glory that was in Christ, that was the reason why the disciples were told not to fear. You might be tempted to think, yeah, but they actually had him in their presence. I wouldn't be afraid if Jesus was with me either. How does Matthew's gospel end? Matthew 28, at the end of verse 20, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or in John 15, 26, Jesus talks of the helper he sends us, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Bible says that Jesus prays for us. Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And later in John's Gospel, Jesus will say that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Fear not, for we have a wonderful Savior. Is that always easy? No, it's not. We're still fallen and sinful. And the world around us is still fallen and sinful. But one of the great temptations that we face is to doubt God when things don't go the way we think they should. We so often put more stock into our will being done than in God's perfect will being done. If you know Christ, then 100% of the things that happen in your life are for your ultimate good. And again, in the eyes of the world, that's nonsense. 
In the eyes of the world, the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. When God tells us not to fear, it's not because every situation will always work out exactly the way we think it should or the way we want it to. We're told not to fear because every situation will work out to our great God's sovereign will. Did you know that the most commonly given command in the Bible is to not fear? An article I read in in Crosswalk brought up that when the Bible tells us not to fear, it almost never says that just in isolation. In other words, the Bible doesn't say, don't fear. On to the next thing. It says, fear not, and then grounds that command in a truth of who God is. We actually saw that in the Exodus verse from Moses that I've quoted a couple times already. Exodus 14, 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, 1. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Genesis 26, 24, God is speaking to Isaac. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And lots of other examples. In the Bible, the Israelites are told not to fear because God will fight for them in the book of Joshua. Joseph is told not to fear taking Mary as his wife even though she's with child because the child has been conceived of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Matthew. In Luke, we're told not to fear because God has given his people his kingdom. And I think that that's something that should be instructive for all of us. That when we're fearful or worried or stressed, that don't put the pressure on yourself to just will yourself to not feel that way, but instead to fill your mind with what God has said in his word and hold to that in the difficulties. Don't just tell yourself not to fear, but tell yourself why you can trust in God. Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid. Let us go to him in the times where we fear. Jesus is Lord of the storm. We've had a lot of storms in our society this year. For some of us, health issues. For some of us, struggles in our families. I think for all of us, certainly we struggle with all of the little losses that we're going through right now. But those things matter too. Watching a game, going to a restaurant, Visiting with people who, at the moment, you're not able to visit with. Going on a trip. The little things that add joy. I don't know if I can think of a time in my lifetime where there's been more uncertainty and angst about the future. There are concerns over our economy and what things will look like in the coming years. There are worries about societal upheaval. There are worries about the future and the unknown. There are worries about our churches Not just this church, but churches throughout our nation and world. 
There's fear of the impact of churches temporarily having closed. Fears of our society and societies around the world becoming increasingly secular. In the book of Revelation, also written by John, he has a vision of Christ and he's terrified. John, I'm sorry, Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. God is still on the throne. Fear not, for we have the God of the universe. He is good. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He hasn't forgotten us. And he loves us. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Again, twice in that passage, Jesus says to not fear. Jesus is Lord, and he is Lord in the storms. Back in our passage in John, the final verse, the disciples now realize that it's Jesus. They're relieved. Verse 21 Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They want to take Jesus in the boat with them, but Jesus has nonchalantly worked another miracle. The story ends with them safely reaching shore. I love this quote from Herman Ritterboss in his commentary on John. In virtue of the glory given by God... No darkness was too deep, waves too high, or sea too wide for him to find them and be with them in the midst of that tumult. Jesus is the God who sees us in the struggles. He's the God who comes to us in the storms. He's the God who's there at our lowest moments. He's the God who tells us not to fear. Because the safest place to be is in his presence. Even if our body dies, for those who believe in the gospel of Christ, we are eternally secure with him. We don't always see him, but in whatever we face, he sees us and knows what we need. Will you trust in him? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have a great gracious and loving Savior. Lord, with whatever we might be going through today, may we trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.